You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Shirley Perry, and Shirley Perry has just uh, written a memoir called After Many Days, and this is by Hellgate, published by Hellgate Press, and it should be available in bookstores very shortly. I believe it's on Amazon already, is it Correct. not, Shirley? Yes. Correct. Well, welcome to the program. I'm, I'm delighted to see Shirley here on, on a couple of grounds. Uh, Shirley has done her memoirs, uh, which include some 13 years she spent with the Central Intelligence Agency. And these were the early days of the agency. And I don't want to date you, but they were the same days I was there. So, so we, you know. <laughs> so we, right. can, we can share that together. Indeed. But her memoirs cover both uh, her days in the agency, which were very exciting times because they were uh, the days in Vienna, uh, the days of the, uh, the uh, Soviet uh, and the shared occupation of those areas, and also the days when there was a very prominent... Uh, uh, agent that was being run yes. uh, by the station then. Shirley, what I'd like to do is, is, is take you back a bit in time, and if you could tell us how you came to be in the CIA. Well, that was just a providential stroke of luck, I would say. I had graduated from Washington University and received upon graduation a fellowship for further study, and I enrolled in this program of counseling and personnel in the psychology department, and that was not a good choice. But anyway, I needed to supplement my stipend. So one day I went to the uh, employment office on campus, and um, before I went in, I looked at the bulletin board to see what was on offer, what I might inquire about. And there was this cryptic notice, and it said, government opportunities available apply within. So I went in, and there was this, it was a one-woman shop, and there was this rather um, uh, elderly woman who was in charge, and I asked about this, and, and she said, um, uh, oh, yes, yes. And I said, well, what is it? And she didn't speak 
at all, but she reached down into the bottom drawer of her desk, looking around conspiratorially to see if anybody was watching, which no one was, and brought up this sheaf of papers, 15 pages, and handed it to me without a word. And I said, what is this? And she said, it's the application for that job. And I said, what job? And she said, quietly, the Central Intelligence Agency. And I said, oh, well, I filled it out, sent it in, quit my master's program, went home to Illinois and waited for three months for my preliminary clearance, and then I was off to Washington. For heaven's sake. Actually, those clearances came pretty fast. They They're did. They're taking at least that much now. Yes. Now, when was that? Well, uh, that, that was been, in 51. That was in 51. 51 when I applied, Okay. Yes. And did you, uh, uh, just out of interest, did you have any reason to think you'd get the job? You say you went back home and waited, and then finally something well, came Well, the through. optimism of youth, and uh, I wasn't rejected, so every day I didn't hear back with a negative answer. I assumed that it was positive, and okay. sure enough, I well, got, you're, got you're, the summons. You're a born optimist. I, yes, uh, yes. I, I get a lot of young people talk to me about joining the intelligence community, and particularly the agency, and I always tell them, keep your day job, because there are so many applicants now, and, uh, and often the background checks take quite a long time. Right. Did you go through... Uh, Early on, did you go through, did they then have the polygraph as part of the Oh, interest? indeed. Oh, mm -hmm. indeed. I had the polygraph test, and I had to be, I had to tell them beforehand that I had been receiving the communist daily worker by a fluke. I had never subscribed to it, and I couldn't get it stopped. And so once I had laid that out on the table, I felt that my palms stopped perspiring, and, and, I, and I made it through the polygraph, no, no problem. And that, that didn't provoke a great deal of it discussion then. It did not. If now, uh, again, let me date myself as well. At that time, I went through uh, the process at Building 2430 E Street, and the polygraphs were given in Building 13. Do you remember How that? appropriate, yes, yes. It, it, seemed, it seemed sort of the, the scary reality of Building 13, you know, because there's no floor 13 on any elevator, and here we were going into Building 13. That's right. It was right. very very ominous sounding. Now, yes. in those days, you worked down along the, what were the, what were the tempos, temporary oh, quarters, indeed. down along the Potomac. The old military barracks there, yes, along, along the refecting pool. Yes. Yes, yes, and creaky floors, and air conditioners that didn't work, and copy machines that were really thermofax machines, which yes. were frustratingly uh, hard to use and to get copies from. And, and when you were going down the corridor, you would occasionally spot the little furry beast running ahead of you, perhaps oh, rounding yes. a corner. We sort of named some of them. <laughs> <laughs> you do remember they, they it They were well. the first moles. <laughs> <laughs> they were the first moles, yes, very good. And, of course, we would have lunch and dangle our feet in sure, the Sure, exactly. Pool. I used to sit on the edge of the reflecting pool with a girlfriend or so, and, and we would eat and cool off in the pool. There was no really uh, a good air conditioning to be had, so this was our way of cooling off during the hot summers. Now, when you, when you joined, you had, a, you had an undergraduate degree. I did. Yes, uh, and you were also a woman. And yes. so what position were you offered? What, did, how did, what was your status then when you went overseas? Well, I was uh, recruited by the man who was in charge of Soviet operations in the Vienna station, and he said he wanted an assistant. So that was rather vague, but it turned out to be more assistant than it was secretarial, although there was typing, and it cramped my shoulders, and I hated that part, but I loved the analysis and the uh, assistant part of the job. And um, I did play a small role in that respect, 
in the recruitment of this first Soviet intelligence agency ever recruited by the any by any allied intelligence organization in Vienna at the time. Now this was what case? Which case this specifically? This was the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pyotr Popov. Popov. This was the right. Popov case. The Popov case. You, you, and I know you mentioned in, in your memoirs the recruitment. Now, was he not, he did not volunteer? Was he not a... He was a volunteer. Yes. He uh, wanted to uh, come over to the Americans, and he did not want to defect. So we were fortunately then able to run him in place, which we did for seven years. His motive was he thought by coming over to the Americans and and uh, divulging uh, himself uh, or the Soviets of vital intelligence, he could somehow smash the Soviet system. And he was a peasant by birth, and he had seen the ravages of collectivization, and he was just bitter against the Soviet system. So he thought in some way he could make a contribution that would bring down the Soviet system. That was his motivation. And he was offered many times the chance to come in from the cold, but he refused. He was a true idealist, I would say. And he really didn't want to make Russia safe for democracy, no. He just wanted to get his people on a better economic footing and, and uh, get rid of all of the Soviet secret police. That's interesting. You know, that was a, a motivation uh, also shared by Colonel Pankovsky, the, the one yes. who later gave us intelligence uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Indeed. as you remember. Uh, we had to keep him from putting bombs around the city because right. he wanted to take out the, you know, the, the leadership. Do them in, absolutely. Yes, yes. do them in. And I think that that, that feeling of, of rage inside him propelled him to give us this, this highly sensitive information, which he did. And the Defense Department at the time estimated that he saved the U.S. some half a billion dollars in R&D costs from what he supplied to us. It was, uh, you know, information on guided missiles, on at atomic submarines. And he, well, early on, he brought us the first Soviet Red Army manual, field manual, which was very valuable for us, too. Prior to that, we had absolutely no knowledge of the Soviet Union, the order of battle, the strategic plans. In fact, in, on the economy, we were very ill-informed. No. So he could was you, our first could entree. Could you just give us, he was a colonel, as I recall, in the GRU, Soviet the military GR, the mili intelligence. Military and foreign intelligence. Uh -huh. it, it was the GRU's mandate. Do you remember yes. his status, What is what is uh, where he was positioned in the service? Yes, he, he was on the uh, strategic intelligence desk for Europe, and then he was assigned to Vienna. And he had um, excellent access. And later in his life, uh, after, after the treaty was signed in 55 and he was called back to Moscow, he was then sent to uh, East Berlin, where he had a vital role in uh, documenting illegals who were sent to the U.S. And of course, we're still seeing Russian illegals today. We are indeed, indeed. They still use that, that uh, entree. I, for, a, for a junior person, and you were not a case officer. But no, not at that time. Mm -hmm. You uh, were given very early insight into the case. You also, as I, I recall was. from your memoirs, performed some support I duties did. in connection with it. Can I you did. just give us a sense of those? Yes, you know, it was... I was quite fortunate, uh, given the tenor of the times and, and the role of women, because most women were analysts and secretaries and stayed so and stayed in-house. And I was given uh, surveillance assignments, and um, uh, mon I monitored um, debriefings uh, over the safe, in the safe houses in the floor above. And um, I really felt 
equal to what men were doing, although I did not handle agents. But I read the reports, and I analyzed them, and I helped draft cables back to the states. So I was in a sort of quasi-case officer position even very much early so. on. Yes, mm -hmm. very much so. Uh, yes, I remember you had the, you refer to the the big ear headphones that you had to wear oh, here. <laughs> yes. the, the, the the ancient technology of the times, but it worked. Yes, it worked. Yeah. We were fortunate in Vienna to have such a masterful uh, tech man, and uh, he enabled us to do many things which are mind-boggling when you think of the the techniques today that can be used. Well, when you when you realize that uh, all of us either have in our purses or on our belts a cell phone with a camera, yes. a and I recall the little uh, <gasps> device you, you yes. and someone else rigged to go on the back was a little plush toy. And a little plush toy. With a camera I, that, was, that was ingenious. That was, again, the, the brainchild of this, this tech man who was just marvelous. And it automatically advanced so that we could take pictures of all the Soviets who crossed from their hotel to their business place of business, parked this car, this nondescript-looking car, in this particular spot, and just clicked away. And this is interesting. See, I was in charge of that mug book when those pictures were developed, and we tried our very best to identify who these people were and then tried to extrapolate who, what their positions were. And you see, Popov was able to give us the confirmation of the identity of these people. And so he vetted some of the, well, most of the officers that we had in our books. And by the way, we had done a pretty good job ourselves, but this was confirmation. And then Popov himself was vetted when we uh, received the defector, uh, Major Peter Deryabin, yes. who came in from the KGB. And Deryabin had been in charge of the Soviet colony, the security of the Soviet colony in Vienna. So he knew everybody and what everybody did. And then by circuitous questioning, we learned that uh, Popov was for real. He was bona fide. He was clean. There was he no was suspicion there about him no within the so-called colony, which was right. their community. Exactly. Yeah. And so we, we were uh, relieved, uh, of course, and then uh, uh, really went after his, his uh, knowledge and information. But he was an undisciplined agent got him in trouble yes he didn't he broke compartmentalization rules he he was this this passionate peasant and uh, could not be contained restricted by all of these regulations but he was sincere and he served the u.s well well i know certainly you you described several of the cia officers out there and he was certainly being run or overseen by extraordinarily capable people yes. who themselves became legends in the agency. Indeed. Could you just go back to that time? You were young. Uh, this was your first job, really. It was my first and job. And you were with the CIA, the CIA. And at that time, really, there weren't all the books and movies and, and, and television and everything. What was the spirit of the time? What was the spirit of being in the CIA, being someone in... in almost a f the front lines of that. Can right. you capture that in some way? Oh, it was, it was the most exciting time of my life, certainly to date, but even so, I would say still the most exciting time of my life. And we felt very, very privileged and very chosen, which we were, and very dedicated. There was an esprit that uh, was incomparable at the time, especially in this outpost, uh, because Vienna was the easternmost outpost of Allied intelligence at the time. It was 90 miles behind the Iron Curtain. And um, so we felt that we were uh, a very special unit. 
and there was a great deal of camaraderie and cooperation and very little infighting. In fact, I don't even remember any. And uh, uh, we, we all, well, I especially, I suppose, being a bit of a romantic, was enchanted by Vienna. And it was always my, the city of my dreams, but when I got there, it was rather a tarnished city and, and uh, gray and damp and a little forbidding, all those huge uh, monumental buildings and, and uh, uh, forbidding uh, uh, alleyways. And I could almost hear the third man theme following me on some surveillance assignments, you know. And, uh, but this whiff of, of espionage made it very, very exciting. And, uh, and, the, and as Americans, we were at that time very well liked. So uh, in our more civilian roles, we were welcomed in the city, and then come springtime when everything was in bloom and it was beautiful. That then it became again the city of my dreams, and and uh, I just reveled in the. Well, it the was a wonderful life. city to be, and and it is interesting because what you describe is, uh, we look at pictures now or, or video clips of soldiers in combat. It's that kind of a spree you're describing. Nobody's watching the clock. Nobody's no, counting numbers. No, They're just all pitching in to get something done. Right, and, and we were assigned hard targets. Recruit Soviet sources. And so, uh, yes, we, we, uh, we all put shoulder to the wheel, and this was our assignment. We just had to produce, and we did, and we did. It, it was a time, uh, you, you were very fortunate to be in the position you were in, but if we look back uh, at, at, at the agency, um, we too reflected American society. There was indeed mm -hmm. a glass ceiling. Were you, there were was. you conscious of that, or, or were, you, were you just happy not, to have your job and, not in and the just field. accepted the situation? Not so much in the field, because uh, we were all as one, so to speak, and I did have these wonderful opportunities, uh, uh, assignments in the field, so that differed from a lot of places, I'm sure. Now, back at headquarters, well, I didn't get into the JOT program to begin with, which was mostly male, and um, uh, one, one had to navigate the, uh, the male-female waters pretty carefully, but I did, when I returned to um, uh, the States, did make case officer status. So personally, I didn't have too many complaints, but that was not the general case. But you, it's interesting, you referred to JOT, that was the junior officer trainee Training Corps, program, yes. now the, mm -hmm. I think it's CT, career trainees. Mm -hmm. um, now that's interesting because you were selected to be a case officer, which is mm -hmm. the, the sort of core job in the operations Indeed. side, the clandestine service. Mm -hmm. So you were selected to be a case officer. It, was it after you were selected, they then sent you through the farm? After I was selected, then I went to the farm. But you were essentially going, you were in classes with all the JOT. Oh, absolutely. It yeah. was virtually the same. Virtually, virtually the, same. the same. yes. Yeah. Without, then, without that initial or that status. Well, then you were, you were a very early uh, yes. uh, female case officer, Yes, you? yes. Sort of, what, 56 Sure. 57. Yeah, yes, that, that, that was, was early, early on. My goodness, yes. That no, was come to early think of it. on. Yeah. Because you were there until when? How, when did you actually 63. I, I hung up my cloak and turned in my dagger. And that was uh, just on the occasion of, I believe, of, of a life uh, change? or Yes, yes, indeed. And, and uh, my husband and I wanted children, and uh, that was a, a propitious time to do so, so. And then I had two children. 
All right. And then did you go, uh, you went out again, though, didn't you, after the um, Vienna assignment? Be, yes, and, and, and before resigning, of course, uh, to, to uh, Munich. Now, th now, this is where it really struck me about being a female with yes. the agency. My husband at the time was uh, with the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, and he was assigned to Munich, and I wanted to accompany him, of course. And I was told, well, surely you can go with your husband. You'll have to resign, though. So that was when the, the uh, axe hit, that uh, yes, if I were as valuable as I thought I was, why did they want, why couldn't I have transferred to the Munich station? And, and of course your father was not a foreigner, it wasn't that issue. Oh no, issue. no, yeah. he was cleared, he, yes. he had been in Vienna, and, and when we were married we were both cleared by our respective agencies, so no, that was not a factor whatsoever. And, um, I was, I was a known quantity, and I had, as I say, been a case officer, so, so they lost an asset, I would say. That's when it really hit me. I remember that at one point in your memoirs, uh, your husband was also involved in, in, in uh, dealing with intelligence and photographs, oh, yes. and you were processing some of those, yes. but you never were able to tell him. You felt that I you never couldn't did. tell him that you were actually That's true. working with his product. That's true. His reports would come across my desk, and I knew what he did. He never knew what I did specifically, and I never told him that I knew what he did. And that was compartmentalization, which you know we took very seriously, especially in Vienna. So did did he know you knew things he didn't know? I don't think so. Okay. Or, or he certainly we never discussed it. Well, wasn't aware that you knew you knew what things he was producing, which right. is a very interesting yes. aspect of of. Of a relationship, CIA. yes, uh, well, yes. Of relationships. It, it affected marriages. Ask yes. About that. yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that a good case officer or, or any person in that employ uh, would have to be very, very circumspect and would have to keep the secrets. I mean, need to know was the mantra with good reason. Well, certainly, uh, Shirley, CIA and your involvement was a highlight of your life. Oh, truly. And uh, if, if, uh, as I say, I get a number of young folks in here, men and women. Mm -hmm. Good. I, I, are there any thoughts you would like to share that, that people would get from listening to this uh, spy cast? Keep pushing up the glass ceiling until it shatters. <laughs> <laughs> and it's come a long way, indeed. It so. has. I think, we, uh, I think we're probably not that far away from having a woman director I think uh, not of the either. agency, just as I they've had now yes. in, in Great Britain. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that the time is ripe, and I think that would be a very good thing. I, I'm going to close just by coming back to your book, After Many Days, My Life as a Spy and Other Grand Adventures. What led you to finally sit down and you, do your memoirs at this date? Very simple reason. I wanted to be able to tell my children what I really did. And I wanted it to be in print, because you know we were never allowed to keep diaries in the CIA. And... Uh, uh, I fortunately remembered and did a lot of research to, to, to bolster my memory for this, but I, I wanted a record for my children. And so back when I first started this, I, I enrolled in a memoir writing course at Harvard, in which I got an A, and uh, the um, uh, colleagues uh, in, in the class and the professor said, you know, this, this is very interesting. This could make a book. Well, that's when I really, really clinched on... on uh, see, I was just going to write the stories for my children. But when I got that encouragement, I thought I will go ahead and try to publish. 
Well, Shirley, I like to think that we've played a small role in helping you leave a record for your children and others, uh, because this, this spycast now will be out there, will be available uh, indefinitely for people who want to hear your voice, hear your own reflections. And let me just take this uh, opportunity of, of thanking you for your service for your, to your oh, country. Oh, thank you, Peter, but the pleasure was mine and is mine to be here today, and uh, I'm just delighted that this will be memorialized. Okay. Thank you again for joining thank us. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. <laughs>